Hello and welcome to the week 10 of the Artist's Way, friends. I hope you had an amazing week. For those of you who are consistently following me, I apologize that we missed the week. But, um, you know, I think one of the practices that in general I'm learning is to allow that place of rest in case it comes up and I think the empowerment that we receive from a creative work and sharing um, pretty much on our own terms when it comes to um, feeling that power and connecting to the creator and opening space is, you know, also allowing for these little imperfections to come to surface and, and being okay with it. So I appreciate your patience in terms of that so we'll move on to week 10 the topic this week is recovering a self sense of self-protection so julia says this week we explore the perils that can ambush us on our creative path because creativity is a spiritual issue many of the perils are spiritual perils in the essays, tasks, and exercises of this week, we search out the toxic patterns we cling to that block our creative flow. Now, sometimes when I read these little introductions, I think, you know, she's saying those things every week. But it's, I think it's very interesting how these layers get deeper and um, we, you know, we are, you know, generally doing just that. We're, you know, uh, um, removing these uh, or investigating these toxic patterns. So the first part is called dangers of the trail. She says creativity is God energy flowing through us, shaped by us, like light flowing through a crystal prism. Prism. <laughs> when we are clear about who we are and what we're doing, the energy flows freely and we experience no strain. When we resist what that energy might show us or where it might take us, we often experience a shaky out of control feeling. We want to shut down the flow and regain our sense of control. We slam on the psychic brakes. Every creative person has myriad ways to block creativity. Each of us favors one or two ways particularly toxic to us because they block us so effectively. For some people, food is a creative issue. Eating sugar or fats or certain carbohydrates may leave them feeling dulled, hungover, unable to focus, blurry. They use, they use food to block energy and change. Don't we all know that? It's called eating your feelings, right? <laughs> she says, for some people, alcohol is the flavored block. For others, drugs. For many, work is the block of choice. For others, an obsession with painful love places creative choice outside their hands. Reaching for the painful thought, they become instant victims than rather than feel their own considerable power. So it's amazing how, you know, we think it's like much easier to give away that power and become victims like on a surface and not um, really thinking long term. She says, um, this obsessive thoughts thought drowns out the little voice that suggests rearranging the living room, taking a pottery class, trying a new top on that stories story that's st stymied the minute a creative thought raises its head it's lopped off by the obsession which blocks fear and prevents risk sex is the great block for many 
She says, now note carefully that food, work, and sex are all good in themselves. It is the abuse of them that makes them creativity issue. Knowing yourself as an artist means acknowledging which of these you abuse when you want to block yourself. Which one makes you angry to even think about giving up? That explosive one is the one that has caused you the most derailment. Examine it. When asked to name our poison, most of us can. That is so true. We know exactly which ones when we hear these sentences. So, and even if you don't, just, you know, just pay attention to which one is the one that you definitely like. You have a very strong reaction about giving up. There's a quote from Claudia Black that says, saying no can be the ultimate self-care. She continues, usually we experience the choice to block as a coincidence. She happened to call, I felt hungry and there was some ice cream. He dropped by with some killer dope. The choice is block. The choice to block always works on the short run and fails in the long run. The choice to block is a creative U-turn, right? So Albert Einstein has this quote here, in the middle of difficulty lies opportunity. Julia continues, as we become aware of our blocking devices, food, business, alcohol, <clears throat> sex, other drugs, we can feel our U-turns as we make them. The blocks will no longer work effectively. Over time, we will try, perhaps slowly at first and erratically, to ride out the anxiety and see where we emerge. Anxiety is fuel. We can use it to write with, paint with, work with. Feel anxious. Try using the anxiety. Feel, I just did it. I didn't block. I used the anxiety and moved ahead. Oh my God, I am excited. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. It is a winning. It is a feeling of winning and accomplishment when we know what the the tools that are presented to us in in shapes and forms that might look scary, um, and and we um, create something with them. It does feel like an accomplishment. Like we we found we found a trick to that video game to how to like get to the next level. Next part is called workaholism. She says workaholism is an addiction. And like all addictions, it blocks creative energy. If people are too busy to write morning pages or too busy to take an artist's date, they are probably too busy to hear the voice of authentic creative urges, right? It's like we're filling ourselves with noises. So therefore, we can't really hear what's really being said. Only recently recognized as an addiction, workaholism still receives a great deal of support in our society. We all know those people who still, I know I have a friend actually who um, admits that they're a workaholic, but still they, you know, it's like the ego is fulfilled, right? It's like you get the approval of the society and that's a short win, short cut to a winning, um, short-lived winning situation. So she offers a test. There is all these questions you can ask yourself to figure out whether you are not workaholic, not an alcoholic, but a workaholic. First one is, I work outside of office hours. Seldom, often, never. I cancel dates with loved ones to do more work. I postpone outings until the deadline is over. So after all of these is like, seldom, often, never. I take work with me on weekends. 
I take work with me on vacations. I take vacations. My intimates complain I always work. I try to do two things at once. I allow myself free time between projects. I allow myself to achieve closure on tasks. I procrastinate in finishing up the last loose ends. I set out to do an, one job and start on three more at the same time. I work in the evenings during family time. I allow calls to interrupt and lengthen my workday. I prioritize my day to include an hour of creative work slash play. I place my creative dreams before my work. I fall in with others' plans and fill my free time with their agendas. I allow myself downtime to do nothing. I use the word deadline to describe and rationalize my workload. Going somewhere, even to dinner, with a notebook or my work number is something I do. Work numbers. <laughs> so... Some of these can be actually very tricky. You don't know, okay, which one is like not healthy. But um, I think if you know that this is something you're doing, you you know, you know that, okay, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. And when it comes down on the paper, it does look like, you know, it's an excuse to, um, you know, bring more noise into my subconscious or into my connection with the creator. There's a difference between zestful work towards a cherished goal and workaholism. That difference lies less in the hours than it does in the emotional quality of the hours spent. One way to achieve clarity about our time expenditure is to keep a daily checklist and record of our time spent. And record of our time spent. Even an hour of creative work play can go a long way toward offsetting the sense of workaholic desperation that keeps our dreams at bay. So she suggests, in order to guard against rationalization, it is very useful to set a bottom line. Each person's bottom line is different, but should specifically mention those behaviors known to be off-limits. These specific behaviors make for more immediate recovery than a vague, generic resolve to do better, right? So, you know, um, I believe she offers a couple of... <clears throat> yeah, she's offering... She's saying boundary is also another... Um, term another way to say this is the bottom line you know like you would say bottom line I will not for example answer my phone during dinner you know or uh, things like that there's a quote from Plato the life which is not examined is not worth living very popular as with creative U-turns recovery from workaholism may require that we enlist the help of our friends Tell them what you are trying to accomplish. Ask them to remind you gently when you have strayed off your self-care course. This will backfire if you enlist the help of people who active workaholics themselves or who are so controlling that they will over-control you. Bear in mind, however, that this is your problem. No one can police you into recovery. Excellent. 
So she says one very simple but effective way to check your own recovery progress is to post the sign in your work area. Also post the sign wherever you will read it. One in the bathroom, on the mirror, refrigerators, nightstand, everywhere. The sign reads, workaholism is a block, not a building block. That is so, 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 I feel like, effective. That is so effective if you just keep that little sentence in your mind, if you see it as you see it. I have a tendency, actually, when I put these affirmations around uh, to kind of not see them. Like, I, like you know, if, if I'm dumb, I just kind of block them out. And that, you know, depends what, how, what strong of a momentum you have. But maybe on your phone, you can put, like, a reminder that will, like, I don't know, every, like, five hours would, come up and in your phone it says workaholism is a block and not a building block excellent next section is called drought in many creative in any creative life there are dry seasons those droughts appear from nowhere and stretch to the horizon like a death valley vista life loses its sweetness our work feels mechanical empty forced these are the times when the morning pages are most difficult yet most valuable. During a drought, the mere act of showing up on the page, like the act of walking through a trackless de desert, requires one footfall after another to no apparent point. Doubts settle up to us like sidewinders. Droughts tell us that they will last forever and that we will not. What do we do? We stumble on. How do we do that? We stay on the morning pages. This is not a rule for writers only. The pages have nothing to do with writing, although they may facilitate it as they do all art forms. For all creative beings, the morning pages are the lifeline, the trail we explore and the trail home to ourselves. My favorite poet, Daladin Rumi, which is actually Persian as well, says... Sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment. I love that. It's so hard yet so simple. Um, she continues, during a drought or during a doubt, I just accurately wrote with a slip of the finger, she says, we're, we're fighting with God. We have lost faith in the great creator and in our creative selves. And yet, we write our morning pages because we must. During a drought, emotions are dried up like water. They may exist somewhere underneath, but we have no access to them. We are between dreams. This is so important. Droughts do end. They end because we have not collapsed to the floor of our despair and refused to move. We have doubted, yes, but we have stumbled on. In a creative life, droughts are a necessity. The time in the desert brings us clarity and charity. When you are in a drought, know that it is to a purpose and keep writing morning pages. To write is to write things, meaning R-I-G-H-T, things. Sooner or later, always later than we like, our pages will bring things right. A path will emerge, an insight will be a landmark that shows the way out of the wilderness. Maester Eckhart says, truly, it is the darkness that one finds the light, 
So when we are in sorrow, then this light is nearest of all to us. Adrian Rich says, the unconscious wants truth. It ceases to speak to those who want something else more than truth. <laughs> very, very cool. Next part is fame. Fame encourages us to believe that if it hasn't happened yet, it won't happen. Fame is not the same as success. And in our true souls, we know that. We know and have felt success at the end of a good day's work. But fame, it is addictive. It is always, it always leaves us hungry. Fame is a spiritual drug. It is often a byproduct of our artistic work, but like nuclear waste, it can be very dangerous byproduct. Fame, the desire to attain it, the desire to hold on to it can produce the how am I doing syndrome. This question is not, is the work going well? This question is, how does it look to them? The point of the work is the work. Fame interferes with that perception. Instead of acting, being about acting, it becomes about being a famous actor. Instead of writing, being about writing, it becomes about being recognized, not just published. Yes, focusing on fame, on whether we're getting enough, creates a continual feeling of lack. There is never enough of the fame drug. Wanting more will always snap at our heels, discredit our accomplishments, erode our joy at another's accomplishments. Remember, treating yourself like a precious object will make you strong. When you have been toxified by the fame drug, you need to detox by coddling yourself. Sending postcards is a great trick. Mail one to yourself that says, you're doing great. It is very nice to get a fan letter from ourselves. In the long run, fan letters from ourselves and our creative self are what we're really after. Fame is really a short uh, cut for self-approval. Try approving of yourself just as you are and spoiling yourself rotten with small kids' pleasures. What we're really scared of is that without fame, we won't be loved as artists or as people. The solution to this fear is concrete, small, loving actions. We must actively, consciously, consistently, and creatively nurture our artist selves. When the fame drug hits, go to the easel, your typewriter, your camera, your clay, Pick up the tools of your work and begin to do just a little creative play. Soon, very soon, the fame drug should start to lessen its hold. Only when we are being joyfully creative can we release the obsession with others and how they're doing. Jay Krishnamurti says, real learning comes about when the competitive spirit has ceased. Next part is called competition. It's funny, when I was reading this chapter, I, was th I started the chapter before reading it thinking, oh, I'm not a competitive person. Once I finished this, this um, section, I realized, oh, wow. <laughs> that is very far from the truth. Here we go. 
She says, you pick up a magazine and somebody, somebody you know has gone further, faster toward your, your dream. Instead of saying, that proves it can be done, your fear will say, he or she will succeed instead of me. Competition is another spiritual drug. We, When we focus on competition, we poison our own wealth, impede our own progress. When we're ogling the accomplishment of others, we take our eyes away from our own through line. We ask ourselves the wrong questions and those wrong questions give us wrong answers. Why do I have such a rotten luck? Why did he get his movie article play out before I got mine out? Is it because sex it, it, it is it because of sexism? What's the use? What do I have to offer? We often ask questions as we try to talk ourselves out of creating. Questions like these allow us to ignore more useful questions like did I work on my play today? Did I make the deadline to mail it off where it needed to go? Have I done any networking on this on its behalf? These are the real questions and focusing on them can be hard for us. No matter, no wonder it is tempting to take the first emotional drink instead. I personally kind of sometimes feel like, you know, words like deadlines or um, just kind of, they're very disciplinary and very, you know, and which is fine. Like sometimes obviously we need the yin and yang of, of the work to be, you know, allowing and sometimes like assertive in terms of like what we're doing. Um, however, you know, to bring back the focus, sometimes we need to, you know, be like kind of slap ourselves out of it, snap out of it and just come back to what needs to be done and take actions towards um, what we imagine and what we want to create. Competition lies at the root of much creative blockage. As artists, we must go within. We must attend to what it is our inner guidance is nudging us toward. We cannot afford to worry about what is in or out. Life, if it is too early or too late for a piece of work, its time will come again. As artists, we cannot afford to think about who is getting ahead of us and how they don't deserve it. The desire to be better than can choke off the simple desire to be. As artists, we cannot afford this thinking. It leads us away from our own voices and choices and into a defensive game that centers outside of ourselves and our sphere of influence. It asks us to define our own creativity in terms of someone else's. This compare and contrast school of thinking may have its place for critiques, but not for artists in the act of creation. Let us concern ourselves first and foremost with what is within us that is struggling to be born. All work is influenced by other work. All people are influenced by other people. No man is an island and no piece of art is a continent unto itself. When we respond to art, we are responding to its resonance in terms of our own experience. We seldom see anew in the sense of finding something utterly unfamiliar. Instead, we see an old in a new light. If the demand to be original still troubles you, remember this. Each of us is our own country, an interesting place to visit. It is the accurate mapping out of our own creative interests that invites the term original. We are the origin of our art, its homeland. Viewed this way, originality is the process of remaining true 
to ourselves. The spirit of competition, as opposed to the spirit of creation, often urges us to quickly winnow out whatever doesn't seem like a winning idea. This can be very dangerous. It can interfere with our ability to carry a project to term. A competitive focus encourages snap judgment. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Does this project deserve to live? No, our ego will say if it's looking for the fail-safe, surefire project that is a winner at a glance and for good. An act of art needs time to mature. Judged early, it may be judged incorrectly. Edgar Degas says, only when he no longer knows what he's doing does the painter do good things. She continues, be willing to paint or write badly while your ego yelps resistance. Your bad writing may be the syntactical breakdown necessary for a shift in your style. Your lousy painting may be pointing you to in a new direction. Art needs some time to incubate, to sprawl a little, to be ungainly and misshapen and finally emerge as itself. The ego hates this fact. The ego wants instant gratification and the addictive hit of an acknowledged win. The need to win now is a need to win approval from others. As an antidote, we must learn to approve of ourselves. Showing up for the work is the win that matters. Lao Tzu says, He who knows others is wise. He who knows himself is enlightened. And Brenda Yulaland says, I will tell you what I have learned myself. For me, a long five or six mile walk helps and no, and one must go alone and every day. All right. So finally moving on to the tasks. Task number one, the deadlies. Take a piece of paper and cut seven small stripes from it. On each stripe, write one of the following words. Alcohol, drugs, sex, work, money, food, family, friends. Fold these stripes of paper and... Strips? Stripes. Strips. <laughs> and uh, place them in an envelope. We call these folded slips the deadlies. You'll see why in a minute. Now, draw one of the deadlies from the envelope and write five ways in which it has had a negative impact on your life. If the one you choose seems difficult or inapplicable to you, consider this resistance. <laughs> you will do this seven times, each time putting back the previous slip of paper so that you are always drawing from seven possible choices. Yes, you may draw the same deadly repeatedly. Yes, this is significant. Very often, it is the last impact on the final list of an annoying, oh no, not again, that yells a break through denial into clarity. Oof, that's scary, isn't it? <laughs> About to face some shadow sides. Number two, touchstones. Make a quick list of things you love, happiness, touchstones for you. River rocks, worn smooth, willow trees, cornflowers, chicory, real Italian bread, homemade vegetable soup. 
the Bodine's music, black beans and rice, the smell of new mown grass, blue velvet, the cloth and the song, Aunt Minnie's crumb pie. Post this list where it can console you and remind you of your own personal touchstones. You may want to draw one of the items on your list or acquire it. If you love blue velvet, get a remnant and use it as a runner on a sideboard or dresser. Or tack it to the wall and mount images on it. Play a little. Number three, the awful truth. Answer the following questions. Tell the truth. What habit do you have that gets in the way of your creativity? Tell the truth. What do you think might be a problem? It is. What do you plan to do about the habit or problem? What is your payoff in holding on to this block? If you can't figure out your payoff, ask a trusted friend. Tell the truth. Which friends make you doubt yourself? The self-doubt is your friend is yours already, but they trigger it. Tell the truth. Which friends believe in you and your talent? The talent is yours, but they make you feel it. What is the payoff in keeping your destructive friends? If the answer is I like them, the next question is why? Which destructive habits do your destructive friends share with your destructive self? Which constructive habits do your constructive friends share with your constructive self? <clears throat> Very good questions. Number four, setting a bottom line. Working with your answers to the questions above, try setting a bottom line for yourself. Begin with five of your most painful behaviors. You can always add more later. If you notice that your evenings are typically gobbled by your boss's extra assignments, then the rule must come into play. No work after six. If you wake at six and could write for an hour, if you were not interrupted to look at look for socks and make breakfast and do ironing, the rules might be no interrupting mommy before 7 a.m. If you're working too many jobs and too many hours, you may need to look at your billing. Are you pricing yourself appropriately? Do some footwork. What are others in your field receiving? Raise your prices and lower your workload. Aha, uh -huh. little self-worth practice there. There we go. Somerset Morgan says it's a funny thing about life. If you refuse to accept anything but the best, you very often get it. <laughs> so here uh, are five examples of bottom line. I will no longer work weekends. I will no longer bring work with me on social occasions. I will no longer place my work before my creative commitments. No more canceling piano lessons or drawing class because of a sudden new deadline from my boss, the workaholic. I will no longer postpone lovemaking to do late night reading for work. I will no longer accept business calls at work at home after six. Task number five, cherishing. Number one, list five small victories. Number two, list three nurturing actions you took for your artists. Number three, list three actions you could take to com comfort your artists. Comfort your artists. Number four, Make three nice promises to yourself. Keep them. 
Number five, do one lovely thing for yourself each day this week. And here we are at the end of this chapter of week 10. Have an amazing week, everyone. And uh, hope to have you as an audience next week as well. Take good care. Namaste.